Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan on News Talk. One listener, Gareth, Gareth Ahern, sent me in an email and he wants to tell his story. His wife, Vicky, ended her life by assisted dying in Belgium. And I spoke to Gareth earlier and asked him to tell me a little bit about Vicky's story. Thank you for giving me this opportunity, Andrea. Mm. My name is Gareth and my wife, Vicky Janssens, uh, died uh, earlier this year in Belgium. She died by assisted suicide. Uh, Vicky was a terminal cancer patient who had had cancer for over 10 years. Her condition became much worse since December of 2022 and the pain and the suffering that, that she endured from then until April gave her no choice but to opt for assisted dying. Well, first of all, condolences, Gareth, on, on what you've gone through in, in, in very recent months. Just tell us a little bit about Vicky and that she, she'd been dealing with cancer and with the diagnosis for, for 10 years, but had it, had it always, was she going through treatment for that entire time or was it a reoccurring? Vicky and I met six years ago and within two weeks of meeting Vicky, uh, she was due to be discharged from her monitoring by the oncology service for uh, uh, the mastectomy that she had had a number of years previously. Uh, but then Vicky discovered a lump in her neck and it transpired that the cancer had metastasized to her lymph nodes. And that began a cycle of treatment over five and a half years. So it was, it was a five-year-long process of cancer treatment. And as the diagnosis uh, started to become incrementally worse, we then, you know, conversations towards what would happen if it became terminal arose. And she did not want to end up in palliative sedation or in a nursing home or hospice care. Okay. Can I ask what age Vicky was, Gareth? Vicky was 47, Andrea. Very young. Mm. Very young. Very young indeed. These were conversations, I take it, Gareth, that that Vicky started and, and, and Vicky brought up, were they? Yeah, very much so. Uh, Vicky was very, Vicky had a great sense of humour. Vicky was uh, outgoing and fun and bubbly, uh, but very pragmatic. Uh, there is a genetic element to the cancer and her grandmother had died in a very horrific way, uh, racked with pain. And her mother, too, uh, is a... Uh, cancer survivor. Okay. So Vicky would have started these conversations because she had a sense that longevity wasn't going to be high on her list of priorities. When Vicky first broached the subject of I want to be in control of, of how this pans out, what's going through your mind as the partner in that conversation? <sighs> well, they're very difficult conversations. Yeah. But they're conversations that I believe all of us should have. Having had many of those with Vicky, all of them are difficult to have. All of them bring up difficult emotions. We're talking about the the end of my wife's life here. But when it's discussed in a way where she has control, um, where it has dignity, where there's the minimum amount of pain involved, 
that I find it very hard or found it very hard to dispute her logic, you know. Mm. They were very, very rational, very pragmatic conversations. Um, there were tears involved, of course. Of course. But logically, you'd have to go away from it going, yeah, I, this seems like the right train of thought or the right path that you're on. Well, as you said, Vicky had gone through this with her grandmother. She'd, she'd seen it with her own mum. She was well equipped with the knowledge of, you know, what was going to come and, and, and how difficult and how painful that could be despite all of the best efforts of, you know, medical intervention here and, and, and palliative care and and pain management and all of that. I mean, she was she was well, well equipped with... Um, with what lay ahead of her. Correct. Um, but this all really came to uh, a head in December when the, the terminal diagnosis arrived. That the cancer, over the course of its progress, had now moved to her stomach. So it's, and possibly her bones. So it's in her lung, it's in her liver, it's in her stomach, um, it's in her lymph nodes. The palliative treatment that was go- that was going to be offered and was offered would only give Vicky a number of additional months, and she was reluctant to try this at first. But on my pleadings and on the com- pleadings of her consultant oncologist, she agreed, and we went for a number of ke- uh, intravenous chemotherapies. Okay. This is just December now, Gareth, of, of last year, 2022. This is, this is December into January of last yeah. year. And we also engaged with the, with the palliative team okay. who offered um, pain relief. Um, but it didn't work. It didn't work for Vicky. Now, at this stage, she's unable to eat very much. Um, she's barely able to drink. And she is, is constantly racked with pain, you know, which is, which is a terrible thing to have to observe yeah, in the person that you is, love. Yeah. And the, the pain medications just didn't seem to offer her any relief. And she became uh, resolved to the fact that her life was going to end. Uh, she had asked for medicinal cannabis and was refused that, that it wasn't appropriate for her condition. And I'm not questioning that um, but she felt that nothing that was available to her was relieving her suffering and that her death was inevitable and that's when she made the decision to make an attempt on her own life which she did in in February That's not through now the I take it assisted Assistant no, it's not. Gareth, it's not. Um, so one night, Vicky went to bed early. There's nothing uncommon about that. I had spent the past number of weeks sleeping downstairs because, not that there wasn't tremendous love between us, but it was just that she was in too much pain to have somebody lie in the bed next to her, you know. And oftentimes when I would check on her, she was just lying in the darkness, crying with her own impending mortality and and the suffering that she was going through. And one night in mid-February, she 
decided to take things into her own hands and took a fairly substantial uh, overdose. I went up to check on her at nine o'clock and I perceived her to be sleeping soundly. Uh, the lights are off and she's in a deep sleep. And I I went downstairs and felt a sense of relief that finally perhaps maybe some peace had come into her life. When I went up again at five or a little thereafter, what I perceived was a, a very different scene. Um, her breathing is very shallow. Um, when I turned on the lights, she's in quite a pale and cyanose state. And then I'm struck with this awful dilemma, you know, you know uh, Vicky had said if, if anything catastrophic ever happened, not to intervene. Mm-hmm. So I have these, these few minutes of conflict where I'm wondering, should I intervene? Should I save my wife? Or should I, or should I let the course of action that she had started take its course, you know? But I, I decided to administer some rescue breaths and check her breathing and put her in the recovery position and, and call for help and help Julie arise. And that began our week-long uh, experience in, in CUH. Um, now, I'd like at this point to say that I can praise the, the medics and the staff in CUH enough for their valiant and heroic efforts. But really, they're working under very, very overstretched conditions, you know, um, an all too common story that people tell. And there are other patients there <clears throat> equally deserving of dignity and respect. But because of the overcrowding situations there, that dignity and respect isn't there. Uh, when we're discharged from hospital uh, a number of days after that, Vicky tells me that if her final days are going to be anything like that in the Irish system, that she wants out and that she's made plans to go to Belgium where she where she's going to avail of assisted dying there. My God, Gareth, I'm just thinking of... You going up to the room and finding Vicky and it it it's it's a horrific sight, which I think will will traumatize me for yeah. many years to come. You know, many years to come. But you, f- for you, you needed to do the right thing, and I suppose it's just completely human, isn't it? Obviously, it's you know, it's phone for help straight away, and of course, I mean, of course, you want to do everything you can do and, and give Vicky every fighting chance and and to give her every fighting chance but there was there was no winning you know, know. There, there was no winning you know Vicky would have have, have died within a number of short weeks uh, certainly no more than months anywhere and she resented me for saving her she resented me for her for that she wanted me to let her die. And then comes the conversation that she's going to Belgium, whether I come with her or not. How did you respond to that, Gareth? Um, well, it's, it's, it's devastating. Yeah. It's devastating. I, the mixed emotions must be just... I loved, I loved and cared for her as she did for me through all the years that we were together. 
But now I'm faced with this, you know, this this I'm going whether you go come or not. I'm I'm going to do this no matter what anybody says. With or without you. And you can support me in this or you can abandon me in this. And I couldn't. I couldn't abandon her. Not in this in, in this final ordeal that she had to go through. And so, had the medical professionals at, at at this point we're obviously into just January of this year, are we, Gareth? We're, in Jan- we're into we're into February of this year, we're into mid February of this year. Of two thousand and twenty three and two thousand and twenty three. And presumably doctors have have and I hate the conversation around this you know, the, the kind of the dreaded timeline and, and people always ask, but but obviously it had been made clear to you and Vicky at this stage that the the prognosis wasn't great and the prognosis wasn't great, of course. Um the the conversations were largely around what quality of life could be had using intravenous chemotherapy for the last months as opposed to extending the time. Mm. And, you know, Vicky had been in the palliative, uh, or sorry, in the oncology service for 10 years at this stage. She yeah. had built up a, what I would call a cordial and friendly relationship with her consultant. But You were keeping as, the fires at, at bay rather than firefighting. We're, yeah, we're yeah. not going to put, put out the fire. No. We're just trying to keep them at bay for yeah. as long as possible. So when the discussion around... Belgium came up in in February. Talk me through, like, what's involved, Gareth, in that? Well, Vicky is a Belgian citizen who had lived here for over 20 years. Okay. And a number of Vicky's close friends in Belgium. Uh, One of them, too, had had breast cancer. And her partner is a GP who works in end-of-life care, if you want to call it that, or, or the administration of euthanasia. And she contacted uh, this doctor and asked him if he'd be willing to take Vicky on as a patient. And he agreed. He agreed. So Vicky's case notes are forwarded to him. Mm-hmm. They have a number of Zoom consultations where it's explained to Vicky what's going to happen. And all this is done in Flemish, you know, so I have no idea what they're discussing. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. And just incredibly difficult conversations and, and for you, Gareth, and trying to process uh, all of this. It's a heartbreaking story. Um Listeners getting in touch, like, what's wrong with the government, the HSE, that they wouldn't give uh, this poor lady medical cannabis to help relieve her agony? Another listener, my sister, passed away from motor neuron disease over the past few years, and she also travelled to Belgium to try to understand the assisted dying procedure. The opportunity took away her fear of suffering. Strangely, it gave her a new lease of life, although she never opted for it. It did help immeasurably, says this texter. Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan. Weekdays at midday on News Talk.
I'm talking to Gareth O'Hearn. His wife died by assisted dying in Belgium in April and he's telling me his story. Gareth, you were explaining that you'd reached out to a doctor in Belgium who decided to take on your wife, Vicky's case. He agrees and he reviews the notes and he agrees that her condition is terminally and he agrees that she's a candidate and he explains the process to her, which Vicky explains to me afterwards. Mm. But it's becoming difficult for her to to translate from Belgian into English, you know. So communication has kind of fallen off a little between us. Uh, But she books flights, books accommodation. We speak to friends and family here. We have a a very difficult conversation with my 16-year-old stepdaughter, Vicky's, Vicky's daughter, where her mom has to explain to her what she's going to do in April and that when Vicky travels to Belgium that she's not coming back you know that's a difficult conversation to have and I help my my pain ravaged wife who's barely able to walk into the taxi and into the airport and answer the flight to to, to uh, Amsterdam. The, presumably the airline aren't aware of... The airline aren't aware. Um, nobody other than okay. those family and friends are aware at this stage. Did you know what was going to happen when you arrived in Belgium, like in, in terms of what day? Uh, yeah, you know, I knew yeah. the day and the time to the minute when it was going to happen. Did Vicky pick that? Vicky picked that, yes. Vicky picked that in consultation with her doctor as to when would be the best time, as to when we could get the paperwork done. Um, Vicky requires to have a, a second opinion while we were there. So we we stay in an Airbnb for three or four days, the last three or four days that she's going to be alive. And I'm by myself, you know, nobody has come with, come with us. My family are at home, my stepdaughter's at home. And I'm trying to care for Vicky as best yeah. I can in her in her pain. Could you have brought people with you, Gareth, or is that just something? She didn't want anybody okay. to be there, really. She just wanted me. She just wanted me. Yeah. And if I didn't want to go for whatever reason then she would have done this herself with the assistance of her Belgian friends. But as I said earlier, I couldn't let her down at this at this final yeah. hurdle. I couldn't. And when you told your like her daughter, your family and friends in Ireland, when like how how do you communicate to people to say, I'm doing this, um, this is happening and it's happening on such and such a date in April at Two o'clock. Whatever time. Yeah, two o'clock. But they're shocked. They're they're anguished. They're tearful. They're some of them try to convince me to conv- talk Vicky out of it, but I I can't. I can't. This decision is made. This decision is made, and it's not going to be reversed. Um. So it it goes from from being tearful into just being stunned stunned into silence.
and they remained numb for the time before we left and probably time afterwards. Those three days that you had, uh, Gareth, when you arrived with Vicky in Belgium, what did you do for those three days? So we're in Antwerp, where Vicky's parents live, and they call every day. But Vicky had just switched off emotionally, you know. She's in a, a frame of mind where she's preparing herself for her death. So she's, she speaks to her parents in Flemish. They stay for a little while. Um, then she, you know, I ask her, how was that conversation? You know, and she tells me that her parents are upset, um, that they don't feel that they can be with her on the, for the procedure. Yeah. And that she tells them she, she doesn't care. She just wants out now. And that the 21st of April can't come fast enough. Uh, so they're very lonely days, Andrea. They're very lonely, yeah. distressing days. But it's just the sole focus now is the ending of her suffering and nothing can stand in the way of that. Uh, and I just spent three lonely days by myself in uh, the apartment while Vicky lay in bed in pain, constantly. On the morning of the 21st of April, what happens? We take a tram ride to a little suburb uh, of Antwerp, to Vicky's friend's house, and there are five of us gathered there, Vicky's lifelong friends. They have flowers in the house, there's some music, and it's a sunny day, and Vicky and her friends sit in the garden and they reminisce about old times. And very early on in the day, Vicky says to me that she hasn't got the mental capacity to translate from Flemish into English for me anymore. So I'll just have to figure it out by myself. So I sit there in the garden with them and I can't participate. I... I'm I'm left out, I'm isolated, I don't know what's being discussed. I, they laugh and they cry and I don't know what they're what they're crying, laughing or crying about. Um, but they spend a few hours together in the garden. And I know that, that brought Vicky some happiness uh, in her final moments. And for Vicky it nearly sounds like like she was nearly at her own wake though you know in in the stories with her friends and her friends are marvelous people yeah. and, you know you know I, I i love them dearly and you know their english is is, is fluent you yeah. know yeah. um it's so much better than than my dutch uh and we do talk and they do console me and we do console each other but it's i'm just the support actor here it's it's Vicky's day, you know. It has to be done in, in a horror way. You leave the house and you go to, is it a clinic? Is it a hospital? No, it's, it, it, was Vicky's, it was Vicky's friend's house. It's Vicky's friend's house. You know, Vicky's, the, the, the couch in, in Vicky's friend's house overlooking the, the garden is where the procedure was carried out. And who carries out the procedure? So it is... Um, the partner of the 
the friend who owns the house. Yeah, she, her, her partner is the GP who's going to carry out the procedure. GPs cannot, can obviously administer the medication in, in Belgium. The GP administers the medication. Yeah. Okay. At, at one o'clock that day, a palliative care nurse arrives and he has a very long consultation with Vicky. And then he speaks to me and he says that he has participated in 20 of these procedures and that it's an honour to be there to support somebody at the end of their life and that he wishes me strength and courage for what lies ahead. Um, he then administers an IV drip to Vicky and then like, removes himself to a different part of the house for a little while. The IV drip, the fluids, gave Vicky a little bit of a bounce back near the end. She, she revived a little. We're talking, we're holding hands, crying. And at 10 to 2, two doctors arrive. They again speak with Vicky for a while, ask her if she wants to proceed, and they prepare the medication. So Jan, the doctor, he speaks to me and he says that it's Vicky's wish to proceed with this. I respect Vicky's wishes and that he can proceed in accordance with that. The first step is the administration of a general anaesthetic. And Vicky's final words on this art were, this feels nice, I could get used to this. And she smiles. Then she closes her eyes and is in a peaceful sleep. They give it a couple of minutes. Then... Jan comes up to me, says that this is the muscle relaxant and that he's going to administer it now. And do I understand what this means? And I say yes. And he injects it into the line that's in Vicky's arm. And within three seconds, all visible signs of breathing and life were gone from my wife. And it was over. What do you do, Gareth, for the remainder of that day? I get brought back to the the apartment by my father-in-law. He and I talk in the car about what happened. I explained to him that Vicky's passing was peaceful and pain-free, and he finds a sense of comfort in that. Mm. And then he drops me off. And I spend the next few days alone in the apartment. I ring family and friends back back here in Ireland and tell them what's happened. They all wish that they could come to me. They, they, they offer to jump on the next flight and come over, and I say, no, it's fine. So I spend that time waiting for my stepdaughter to come over for Vicky's funeral in Belgium. We had a funeral service in Belgium and one in Ireland. Okay. It must have been an incredibly lonely few days, Gareth. It, 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 it was. It, yeah. it just was. She had told me that she hadn't booked her suitcase home on a flight, that there was two tickets to Belgium and one ticket home, and that I was to gather up her stuff, give it into a local charity shop, clothes and her perfume and all of the things that she brought with her. I gave away it two days later. And that has just been... The reality of this roller coaster yeah. of horror that I've been on since since December of, of, of last year. 
just one ordeal after the next. And it's only five months ago. Mm. When did you come back to Ireland? I came back, uh, my stepdaughter and I came back after the, the funeral service in Belgium. And just, you know, like, like walked in that door, like knowing that my wife was never going to be there again, you know. Very difficult. Into this, this, this new reality of, of, of loneliness and the horror of everything that we had to endure. It's only you know when you mentioned that you booked two flights, travelling to Antwerp and, and one back. just a single yeah. flight home. Yeah. The reality of all this then starts to to play out, and I know it's it's something that's been discussed and it'll be debated in Ireland and the merits and for and against and whether we should have some, you know, not exactly the same but, but some kind of a, a similar a similar procedure or system here but what's your thoughts on that now Gareth Evan? I mean you, I've never talked to anybody before who's actually, you know, walked in your shoes and, and lived through this Vicky's death was inevitable she would have died had Vicky been able to avail of an assisted dying here in Ireland, the ordeal and the burden on all of us, both Vicky herself and those of us who loved her, would have been lessened greatly. She would have been in her house, or at the very least, she wouldn't have had to travel in excruciating pain to a country which she no longer considered to be home. Her friends from Ireland that she had been very close to could have been with her. My family, my daughters, could have been there to support me in 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 my lonely hours. It just could have been done with, with more dignity and, and compassion mm. had we been able to, to avail of, of assisted dying here. And I realise that this is a multifaceted debate and that my story is just one story. Yeah. And I just want to open this up to like broader discussion that nobody should have to endure what we had to endure and that perhaps the broader Irish public deserve a say as to whether or not we want our legislators to amend the laws in relation to this. You know, I, could, I know it's before the committee at the moment. Mm. I've... Uh, I've been in touch with uh, Jean O'Kenny uh, and the committee with a view to making a, a submission. Uh, I hope they take me up on that and I hope that they're at least prepared to listen to what my wife and I had to endure yeah. and to take that into consideration well, in I, the decisions they make. I really appreciate, Gareth, you sharing your your story with us today because it's it's not easy to relive it and particularly when it's so fresh um and so raw and just just five five short months ago but look we're thinking of you and your your daughter your stepdaughter as well I mean incredibly incredibly difficult for you but we're we're thinking of you all and and thank you for sharing that with us today thank you very much Andrea thank you has to be one of the most heartbreaking stories that I've heard in a in a long time um, because the mixed emotions for, for Gareth and his family in, in going through what they went through just five short months ago in April of this year 
must have been absolutely incredible. So that's why I thought it was really important that we hear Garrett's story. He just sent in an email to me um, and needless to say, that's what caught my attention. But I thought it was so important to hear his story because you're going to hear so much more about this, about assisted dying, dying with dignity, the bill. I mean, we've talked about it here on, on this show. It's been been well talked about on many occasions, but I've never heard Garrett's voice, somebody that's literally walked in his shoes and, and done so, so recently. And, and that's why I thought it was really important to hear that in the discussion today, because you are going to hear so much more of this. Like the committee was only formed in, I think, January of this year. The the hearings um, continuing as well. So this is going to become a much more talked about and topical issue. And I, I know it's it's very divisive and, and it's 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 very controversial for, for a lot of people. As Garrett said, there's a lot of different aspects to this, but it is a decision that our government are going to have to make um, about whether Gareth and, and, and Vicky would have to leave these shores and travel abroad if they want to to do assisted dying or or do we want to help and support our citizens in this state? So it is something you're going to hear more about. Lunchtime Live at Newstalk.com is the email address if you want to get in touch. Jonathan has gotten contact. I'm a 68-year-old male and I've been in tears for the entire interview. I'm ashamed of our country and our health system. Such a brave man. He will see her again in heaven. Great interview. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, another listener again. I just am crying listening to this man about his wife. My heart goes out to him. So, so difficult. Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan. Weekdays at midday on News Talk.